Did you ever consider yourself a bad Christian just simply because you were having some doubts or because you were struggling through some fear? Well, you're in good company. That's exactly what happened to Jesus, and he shows us the way on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church, a church for all generations, located in lovely Red Bank, New Jersey. It's so good to be here with you. Uh, I was on a trip to Florida this last week, and uh, it was Central Florida where the alligators are plenty and the mosquitoes are too. It was really fabulous. Anyway, <laughs> I, I had a I had a good trip. Uh, for those who were wondering, uh, we didn't have a podcast last week, really just because we had some technical issues. Man, technology is great, except for when it's not. And we the, the sermon file was corrupted. I'm sure there's like a spiritual lesson in there somewhere, but either way, we were unable to post it. But we're into a new sermon series now called 24 Hours That Changed the World, and it's based off of Adam Hamilton's book of the same name. I would say really loosely based. I think Adam gave us some great inspiration and helped us to frame the series, but it's really all of our own content. Um, and anyway, we started that last week, and we started with the Last Supper, and we're going to work all the way through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life leading all the way up to Easter. So we hope that it's meaningful for you. I'm sorry that you missed uh, episode the first episode in that, um, the first in the series, but... Um, uh, real quick, we just, looking at the Last Supper, I opened the sermon by asking, if you could have anything you want for a last meal, what would it be? And we had some fun talking about what a, what a last meal you know, we would like to have. Mine included steak and lobster. And then I asked, well, what would make that meal more meaningful to you? Would it be the people that you ate with? Um, would the food that you ate be symbolic of how you lived your life, and it was a segue into talking about Jesus' last meal with his disciples, what it meant, the impact of sharing this Passover meal, that the whole meal is about the celebration of freedom, escape from slavery, and uh, saved from death by the blood on the doorpost and the passing over of the angel of death. So, um, and then what did that mean that Jesus, who was positioning himself as the the ultimate Passover lamb, what did that mean? So uh, anyway, we are moving forward now. Pastor Julie gives a great sermon um, on that night that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, so I'm excited for you to listen to that today. In the meantime, I did want to remind you that even though we are, gosh, I think at this point, something like 13 days into the 40-day discipleship challenge, it's actually not too late to jump in. Who cares if it takes you a little bit beyond Easter? This has been so great. So uh, it's a Facebook group. It's a closed Facebook group. So you have to ask to join and then uh, we approve you and you get in and it's got all the previous videos from all the other days. So you can catch up uh, however and whenever you like. And um, it, it's been really great. It's a daily devotional where I shoot out to you just a, a short devotion based on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And it's about three to five minutes, just as a primer and just as a way of thinking about God and getting going uh, in your day. So uh, if you want to get on that, just hop on to the Facebook page, Tower Hill Church, and you'll find the 40-Day Discipleship Challenge Facebook group. You can also find that through, uh, through the links on our website, towerhillchurch.org. 
Well, here we go. We are jumping into this next in the sermon series about the Garden of Gethsemane here with Pastor Julie. Have a great week, everyone. This is the second week of our series called The 24 Hours That Changed the World. And we are taking a look at the last week or last day of Jesus' life, that last night and day. Um, Last week, Pastor Jason started us off and talked about the Last Supper, that Passover meal they had in the upper room, and um, I was not here. I was out of town. My family and I were in Washington, D.C. We were visiting my brother and his family who live right outside the Beltway, and um, usually we hang out at home, and the kids play with their cousins, and the adults sit around and talk, but since it was a President's Day weekend, we decided to do the touristy thing and visit museums. Well, wouldn't you know, there were a few other people that had the same idea. There were lines everywhere, lines, lines, lines to wait to get into things, and especially at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, As you might have heard, the newest presidential portrait was just unveiled, and the line to get close to it, if you didn't come in through the main galleries we did, was down the hall, down the staircase, out the courtyard, blocks away. Uh, It was pretty unbelievable. As you've probably heard in the media, this portrait is a little different than most others in that gallery, and it is historic in that it was um, the first African-American president in the gallery, and it was painted by the first African-American artist uh, whose work is in that gallery. And uh, as you may have also read, both or no, both of those um, people are known for combining the past and the present in some powerful and sometimes controversial ways. And the portrait reflects this. So instead of a formal pose sitting at a desk or standing at a bookcase, a lot of them do, the former president is shown sitting on a simple chair, and he is surrounded by this fortress of vibrant colorful leaves and flowers, and as you can see, green is the predominant color, it's as if he's in a garden. And the flowers around him are symbolic to his life history. There's jasmine to remember his home state of Hawaii. There's chrysanthemums to represent Chicago, where he spent his early career and met his wife. And there's African blue lilies in memory of his late father. And there's apparently more symbolism about the type of chair and how it's positioned, but I missed most of that. Um, You may already know that gardens often have deep meaning and symbolism, especially in ancient cultures and Eastern cultures. Gardens appear throughout the Bible. First garden you could probably think of in Genesis, Garden of Eden, and then at the very end in Revelation, the garden, the new heavens and new earth, and there are many in between. Uh, Kings of Israel often had palace gardens, And burial tombs were found in gardens. Uh, Mary, as you know, thought Jesus was the gardener. And there are two gardens, part of the last day of Jesus' life, the 24 hours that changed the world. And today we're going to focus on one of those gardens, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a grove of olive trees that are really old. You can tell by looking at those spread across the base of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. And tourists still visit it today. Just learned in our Wednesday Bible study this week that the prophet Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would stand in this same place. And hundreds of years later, Jesus and his disciples went there frequently to pray. 
So here, once more, we're going to turn in our scripture. Um, in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he comes to pray. And all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about this, which tells us it's really important. They all have their own little variations on the story. But they all describe that this is the night that Jesus comes to terms with what's going to happen next. His betrayal, his arrest, his punishment for crimes that he did not commit, sins that were not his. So this morning I'm going to read Mark's version beginning in chapter 14. First we have verse uh, 26 that really just kind of gives us context. It's, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That would have been at the end of the Passover meal, which Jason talked about last week. And then we'll skip to verse 32. Where it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to them, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And once more, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, let's take a closer look at what was happening in that garden and what was significant about its context. Jesus asks his, he takes all his disciples to this garden, takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and asks them a simple request. Sit here, stay awake, and pray. And they can't do it. Now, to be fair, it was late at night. They had just had dinner, probably included some wine. But this is Jesus. This is their leader and teacher and guide that has lived with them for three years. And he goes out and kneels on a rock He prays this prayer three times, same prayer, asking God to take this cup from him. Ask that God's will be done. Now, you may already realize he's not talking about a real cup. He's talking about the experience of suffering 
and death. Earlier, he had asked James and John, are you able to take this cup? So just like Adam and Eve were tempted in that first Garden of Eden, Jesus is being tempted now. Having a tug of war with this idea of God's will or my will. He's in this garden, struggling. And three times he comes back to his closest friends and finds them asleep. And after two attempts of waking them up, the third time he just says, enough. I want to share a little bit about the context of this place that I just learned this week. is fascinating. The Garden of Gethsemane, you can put the garden back up if you want. The Garden of Gethsemane gets its name from two Hebrew words, got, which means oil, and shamane, which means press. So I admit that I didn't really appreciate the significance of this until last week when my family visited another tourist attraction, the Museum of the Bible. Just opened last November. Maybe you've heard about it. It's an incredible six-foot or six-story, no, not six feet, six-story building. It's beautiful and high-tech and interactive and engages people um, with the message and the people and the places of the Bible. I recommend it if you're ever in Washington, just a few blocks from, from the National Mall. You can actually see the dome of the Capitol from the, from the top floor. Anyway, one of the exhibits we went to was the Jesus of Nazareth exhibit, after we'd already gone through the Old Testament and parting the Red Sea and the plagues and all this kind of stuff. It's like Disney, seriously. Everything's interactive and sound and sights. Um, there was this replica of an olive press, which we'll show you here. And uh, that's my little nephew, um, trying to work the olive press. It's just this big stone with a big log um, sticking out from it that you can push around or you can tie your donkey to it and have your donkey pull it around. Um, doesn't look very fancy, but I learned so much about, about how it works. And there was a sign next to the, the olive press here um, describing how olives were a staple in their diet and all the ways they use olive oil medicinally and for cooking. It was also used to anoint someone seeking healing and blessing because olives were a sign of God's favor. Now, this olive press, this big thing connected to a millstone, like I said, looked pretty simple, but here's how you make olive oil in case you ever wanted to know. So first of all, you don't pick the olives. Who knew? You beat them down with a stick. Okay, You beat them off the branches, and then they lay them on a a cloth underneath, and from there, they dump the olives into this olive press. And either a donkey or a little nephew or whoever's nearby can push it around and uh, crush the olives in the trough, which smushes them down and removes the pits. There they are. Okay? So then you take this olive mush, which I'm sure is the scientific name for it, and they would gather it all up and put it in these woven bags, which they would stack on top of each other and then lay a long log on top of it and just squeeze, squeeze, squeeze all the oil out that they could. And there are several more steps to this elaborate process that involves separating and settling multiple times. Separate and settle, separate and settle. So think about this as the backdrop an olive garden, and an olive oil press as the backdrop where Jesus prays one last time before he is betrayed and captured and tried as a criminal. 
In the shadow of the place where olives are crushed, Jesus experiences a soul-crushing struggle. Mark tells us he is distressed and agitated and deeply grieved. We see he separates himself and settles multiple times. And he kneels on this hard, rocky ground and falls on his face and cries out to God in agony. You can actually still visit this rock where Jesus knelt and prayed. It is in the Basilica of Agony in the Church of All Nations. See that there? That whole thing is a rock, and they built their altar around it. And you can come up and and sit and pray. I think some people kind of use it as a... Like an idol, basically, but you can come there and and um, and and touch that rock and um, try to get in touch with that experience that Jesus had, saying, "Not my will, but yours be done." People still visit it today. Well, this posture of Jesus, agitated, distressed, grieving, crying out in agony—that's not how we're used to seeing Jesus, and it's a little unsettling for many of us. I mean, where, where's his courage? Where's his faith? Where's this Jesus that's always telling us, do not be afraid? Today, he seems to be falling apart. We might even call it today uh, an anxiety attack or, or meltdown. In Luke's version, Jesus is actually sweating drops of blood. It is an actual physical condition you can have under extreme duress. Wouldn't it have been easier at this point for Jesus to just have said, enough, I'm done. He said to his disciples, but I'm wondering if it was going through his head. That sure was likely to be our inclination. Enough, I can't do it. I know sometimes when we're overwhelmed, it's just easier to shut down. Or run away or go to sleep. Well, perhaps there's something in your life that you sense that God wants you to do, as Jason prayed. Maybe it's to reach out and serve or love someone in need. Maybe it's to leave behind an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's to um, give of yourself in some way that is more generous than usual. Maybe it's to take part in a new ministry. Or maybe it's to take action against some sort of evil or injustice going on in the world. Lord knows there's plenty to choose from. Human trafficking, abuse, gun violence. Pick one. Well, maybe you've had this sense that God was nudging you, this Holy Spirit, to do something, but you just didn't want to do it. If so, you're in good company. Because throughout the Bible, whenever God asked someone to do something, with just a few exceptions, whether it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or Gideon, Isaiah, Jonah, you can find a dozens of examples. Whenever God calls someone, they find a reason why they can't do it. Too too old, too young, not very well spoken, too weak. And each, just about each time, the only person I can think of who doesn't do this is Noah. So you, Noah does exactly what God wants him to do. So you've chosen his name very well. Does exactly what he's supposed to do. But every time those people with their objections would speak up, 
they eventually surrendered themselves to God's will and realized that if God was calling them to do something, God would equip them to do it. I also need to warn you that whenever God is, whatever it is that God is leading you to do, chances are it won't make much sense to others looking on. They might question you. They might think you're crazy. They might question your judgment. Uh, they might even make fun of you or persecute you. You're in good company again. But you see, when you pray that prayer, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Don't pray it backwards. That's not a good idea. Not my will, but yours be done. Anything can happen. It's a prayer of complete trust. Like the song we just sang. And it's not an easy one to pray. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. I think this prayer can be summarized in in four words. The first one is approach. That we need, well, let's first focus on Jesus. When Jesus was at his lowest, most frustrated, scared, weakest point, he didn't run from God. He ran toward God and approached God in this agonizing prayer. Our first instinct when we are anxious and afraid needs to be to run toward God, to approach him, not run away. And second word is continue. Jesus continued to approach God again and again. Just in this short passage, he goes three different times and says the same prayer each time. So just because we've prayed about something once or twice or maybe considered it once or twice doesn't mean we should stop there. We need to continue to pray, continue to listen, continue to discern, and ask God to guide us. And the third word is surrender. Jesus surrendered to God's will over his own and faced the cross. And we need to surrender. We need to get out of the way and figure out what it is that God wants for us. Our puppy Bellamy, who we got last fall, uh, models this for me. Whenever we go to approach him, he quickly rolls on his back like this, like, I give up, I surrender. He, he really just wants his belly rubbed, but it's this, it, it's just this great reminder. He instinctively does it with no fear. I give up. Surrender. And then the last word is embrace. See, Jesus not only surrendered to God's will, like I give up, he embraced it. He embraced it all the way through his betrayal, beating, mocking, jeering, humiliation, crucifixion. What a great gift and example. And not an easy one. Not one that we would readily choose. So instead of shutting down or running from challenges, what would it look like for us to embrace them? A good friend of mine from Georgia who is a nurse would often remind me, pain is your friend. It tells you when something is wrong. And needs to be changed, needs your attention. 
when I used to run longer distances and compete in races more frequently, she would warn me about the dangers of dulling the pain with medicine, especially after an overuse injury or a long run. She'd say, think of pain as a messenger and let it do its job. That one stopped me in my tracks. I think the Parkland, Florida youth understand this idea because I think pain is fueling their fight for change. I'd like to close with a story of suffering that I think embodies this, this message and this prayer. It's one that I've been wrestling with for weeks, and it's frankly hard to tell. So here goes. When I worked in youth ministry in Rye, New York, years ago, more than 20 years ago, before Daniel and I had kids, there was a couple named Jean and Will that um, worked with us. They were our primary volunteer leaders. And they had two young girls, Catherine and Eleanor, who were ages four and two. And I don't know if you know that our girls are Catherine and Eleanor as well, Catherine Claire. Um, they Together, we helped start this community-wide youth ministry, and we became good friends. We shared meals together at each other's houses. We would watch their kids so they could have date night. They hosted a baby shower for us when Sam was, before Sam was born and helped guide us as brand-new scared parents. And when they had their third daughter, I was there in the hospital hours later, and then when it was time to give birth to Claire, they watched our toddler Sam. So they were like family. We kept in touch through the years and through visits and then Christmas cards and now mostly Facebook. And I knew that uh, her first two daughters, Catherine and Eleanor, both went to Michigan State on athletic scholarships. But what I both were on the rowing team. But what I didn't know until about six weeks ago is that both of them were patients of Dr. Larry Nasser, the doctor, Michigan State and U.S. Olympic team that. U.S. Olympic gymnastics team that I imagine you've heard about in the news. So it turns out that Eleanor was a victim, was not a victim of the abuse, but Catherine was, the older one. Now her mom shared this, I was filled with rage and a sense of helplessness. Catherine? Little Catherine? She's permanently four in my mind even though she's in her mid-twenties now. I didn't know what to say, except that I was so sorry and so proud of her courage and bravery to speak up. Now, she could have shut down or run away from this awful series of events, which she did for many years. But Catherine eventually allowed pain to be her friend, and she embraced it. She saw this experience as larger than herself, and she sensed that God was calling her to do more. She knew it would require persistence and some more suffering. She's also incredibly articulate and now works for an advertising and marketing firm in New York, which I don't know how you do when you're four. That's kind of amazing. Um, but like I said, she's a grown-up woman. Um, so last fall, Catherine wrote a letter to the Michigan State president, and she sent copies to all her former coaches and trainers and the athletic department staff members to share her experience. She got no response. Nothing. So she decided to post it on her social media accounts. 
and it got the attention of the local press in Lansing, Michigan. She didn't stop there. She wrote an open letter to Nike, posted on her Facebook account, asking them to temporarily suspend their partnership with Michigan State until the leadership made changes to protect their athletes. And Nike wrote back, had the letter. With gratitude, they showed gratitude and empathy and praised her for her courage, but they stopped short of making any promises. And Catherine's efforts finally connected her with those conducting the investigations, and she ended up being one of the 158 victims to read her impact statement at the sentencing hearing last month. She was quoted in the New York Times. So Catherine approached this difficulty head on. She continued even when she was ignored, while others were asleep, shall we say. She surrendered her privacy for the greater good. She embraced her pain. And if you watched any of that hearing or the recap afterwards, you likely heard the statement by Rachel Denhollander, the Olympic gymnast. She was the first victim to come forward years ago. And the last one to speak at the sentencing. I think her testimony was 35 minutes. The judge led her do the whole thing. And you may have also heard that as a person of deep Christian faith, Rachel understood what it meant to approach suffering the way that Jesus did. She surrendered her will to God's will. It cost her friends. It cost her her church. She was asked to leave. She was called names and accused of all kinds of things that were not true, called an ambulance chaser. They said she was just wanting fame and attention. Uh, But she continued. She continued. She embraced this cup that God did not take from her. And she used part of her time to share the gospel of Christ with her perpetrator. Rachel spoke of God's sacrificial love that paid the penalty for sins that he did not commit. She spoke of forgiveness and the repentance that must come before it. She spoke of God's final judgment. And then she offered him an invitation to faith, but with this warning. She said, Larry, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done? The guilt will be crushing. And that it was what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. So that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Even in her pain and persecution and 15 years of waiting for justice, Rachel was able to proclaim the sweet gospel of Christ. And speak it face to face to the man who had brought her to this point. And to remind him that grace and hope 
and mercy are his, where none should be found. Well, I pray that you never have to encounter the kind of pain and suffering that Catherine and Rachel endured. But if you have, I pray that you have loving people in your life who will sit with you and listen and pray and stay awake. And the next time you sense that God is speaking to you through a painful experience, I encourage you to spend some time in the garden with Jesus, where you can approach God with a trusting heart, where you can continue in persistent prayer and effort, where you can surrender your will to God's and embrace pain as your friend. May it be so. Amen.